Thank you, Amanda. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we pray uh, for your help right now in this moment. Lord, we pray that the, the Holy Spirit who inspired Paul to write these words to the church at Corinth, who were living in a very different co- time, in a very different context, uh, we pray that that same Spirit who gave inspiration uh, would right now in this moment give illumination to help us uh, understand what your word says and then how to rightly apply it to our own unique individual context and into our context as, as a church family. And so, Father, we pray for faith right now, and we pray that you would help us to hear your word and receive it. Lord, I pray that you would be with me. I pray, God, that, that I would not aim to be clever, but that I would aim to be clear. I pray, Lord, that I would not be trying to uh, impress uh, people, but to be faithful uh, to your word. I pray that Lord, you would speak through me as I aim to yield to the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of you, Father, and in the name of your Son. So we pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, Chapter 8 begins with the phrase, uh, now concerning. Oh, before I start with that, I was supposed to make an announcement about giving. So as we continue in worship, uh, we're supposed to be, uh, no, we're supposed to be, you are not obligated. This is going well. Can I just start over? Maybe I'll just come back and pray again. As part of our worship, we worship through singing, through the Word of God, and through uh, tithes and offerings uh, to ensure that there is nothing that we treasure more than Christ. We work giving into our worship services, and there's a number of electronic ways that you can do that, and an offering back, offering box at the back of of the auditorium. Now chapter 8, verse 1, begins with now concerning a food offered to idols. That that phrase, now concerning, you might remember, that's how chapter 7, verse 25 began, now concerning the betrothed, or the virgins, or the singles. And then going back to chapter 7, verse 1, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. In this section, and beginning in chapter 7, on into chapter 8 and 9 and 10, Paul is addressing things, addressing um, uh, questions that the Corinthians had written to Paul in a letter. They were trying to work things out as a church family. It wasn't going well. There was just leading to more division and argument. And so they decided to write Paul a letter. And Paul has been responding. Now concerning the things that you wrote. Now, so we've been sort of reading along in this letter and kind of tracking with Paul because Paul's answering questions about marriage and sexuality and singleness. And these are all really relevant to us or relevant to people that we care about who who are married or who are struggling in a difficult marriage or who are are single and wrestling with that. So it's all been very, very relevant now concerning marriage, now concerning sexuality, now now concerning singleness, and now concerning food offered to idols. What on earth does it have to do with us? I mean, did anyone have anything for breakfast that was offered to an idol? Anything on the menu at lunch? And if you're going to munch on anything during the Super Bowl tonight? Uh, is there any, does anyone here have any connection to food sacrificed to idols on a regular basis? Now, some of us who grew up in different cultures, different backgrounds, you might say, yes, that was very much a part of every day. It was an inescapable part of life. 
But what does that mean for us right here, right now? And, and truth be told, I just got to give you a fair warning. Like, we're going to be dealing with this for three chapters. <laughs> he starts in chapter 8 and goes all the way into chapter 9, all the way to chapter 10. Even the first verse of chapter 11 is still on this topic of food sacrifice to idols. The, the, you'll, you'll notice here in this passage that the word no is repeated over and over and over again. Let me just read to you the first three verses. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. You see, Paul is concerned here, not just about the issue of food offered to idols. He's going to answer that in chapter 10. But he's going to take sort of the long route to get there. Because Paul is recognizing that beneath the issue of idolatry and beneath the understanding of food, there was an arrogance in the church at Corinth. He used that word again, puffed up. Remember he talked about that in chapter 4 when they were arguing about who the best leader is. I follow Paul, I follow Paulos, that they were being puffed up. And then when he was calling them out about the man who was sleeping with his mother-in-law, he said, and you're puffed up about it? You're arrogant about it? This church was puffed up. And Paul says they're puffed up because they think they know everything. They're, they're know-it-alls. So the title for today's, today's message is a puff up or build up. Those, those are the options. What, what, how do we want to spend our life and our time and our energy? Puffing up ourselves or building up our brothers and sisters in Christ? Now, I need to lay a little bit of a groundwork here if we're going to be able to properly understand not just this message, but Lord willing, all of the messages in the coming weeks that are going to take us right through chapter 8 and chapter 9 and chapter, and chapter 10. All of this has to do with food. Now, oftentimes, 1 Corinthians 8, because it deals with food, because it talks about stumbling brothers, uh, because it, it mentions a lot of the same words and the same language as Romans chapter 14, 1 Corinthians 8 to 10 is just kind of lumped in with Romans 14. Romans 14 dealt with the Jewish dietary laws and the Jewish calendar. And one person celebrates one day, another person celebrates another day, another person celebrates every day. And some people say you can eat anything you want, and some people say no, you can only eat that which was prescribed in the book of Leviticus, and they were arguing, and Paul's conclusion was, you do you. Paul's conclusion was, just be free. Everyone can be convinced in their own mind. And that, that, was the, that was the attack. Paul was like, we're not, we're not going to argue about this. If your conscience requires you to follow this, or if your conscience gives you freedom to do that, Paul just says, you do you. Be free. This isn't worth arguing about. Don't force your position on another person. That's the argument of Romans 14. 1 Corinthians 8 to 10 is very different. Has nothing to do with Jewish dietary laws. Has everything to do with food that is offered to idols. And Paul's response is, not be free. His response actually is, knock it off. But he takes a long, circuitous way to get there because he's concerned. He could, he's an apostle. He could just say, as to food offered idols, just stop it. Just stop it. Stop it. He could have done that. 
But he's concerned about what's lying beneath their disobedience in this regard. So a couple of things about food. Remember this in Mark chapter 7 when Jesus talked about how out of the heart comes all kinds of sexual immorality and murder and evil. Jesus said there's nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. When he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable and he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that what goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all food clean. Food in and of itself is neutral. Jesus said the dietary laws, if you want to follow the, the dietary laws are irrelevant now. All foods are clean. This is what Paul is getting at in Romans chapter 14. This was, this was re-emphasized with Peter. Peter would have been there when Jesus said that, but Peter didn't get it. Peter was a slow learner. He was like me. In the book of Acts, Peter had to have a vision, a vision of all of this food. And, then, and, and the, the Spirit says to him, arise, kill and eat, be free, eat whatever you want. So Peter goes into Cornelius' house, shares the gospel, and then the Apostle Paul starts going around to all of these other Christians, or sorry, all of these other nations, and they're becoming Christians. He didn't go to Christians. They weren't Christians. He made them Christians by preaching the gospel. Then we come to Acts chapter 15, and there's this crisis in the church, the circumcision crisis, the question of, if you want to become a Christian, do you have to become Jewish first? And so the elders at the church of Jerusalem and all the apostles get together and Peter is there and Paul is there. They're all sharing their own testimony about how God has been speaking to them and how God is working. And then they write this letter. They write this letter to all of the new Christians from non-Jewish backgrounds. And they tell them, you don't have to get circumcised. You don't have to become Jewish in order to become a Christian. But this is what they write. Acts chapter 15, verse 28 to 29. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, it's always good when you agree with the Holy Spirit, to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. We don't want to lay on you the burden of circumcision. We don't want to lay on you the burden of dietary laws. We don't want to lay on you the burden of the Sabbath or the burden of other uh, uh, rituals or ceremonies. We don't want to lay no other burden other than this, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from sexual immorality. Those were the only two instructions. And then, a generation later, John is on Patmos. He has this vision in the book of Revelation, and he's writing these letters to the, to the seven churches and to the church at Thyatira. He says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, but this I have against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, whoever she was, it's a symbolic name, who calls herself a prophet, prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to do what? To practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. If you're really to boil it down, what's 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 7, and 8 about? Sexual immorality. Sorry, 6 and 7, sexual immorality. What's 8, 9, and 10 about? Food sacrificed to idols. Food sacrificed to idols is not neutral. It's not you do you. Now, Paul is going to get there eventually. Let me show you, just to provide a little bit of context. Look, at, look just jump down to verse 8. 
He says, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. He says, food is neutral. As one theologian says, it's not about the menu. It's about the venue. It's not what you're eating. It's where you're eating. Look at verse 10. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge, remember the Corinthians were all about the knowledge and how puffed up they were about their knowledge. If anyone sees you who have knowledge, eating in an idol's temple. Paul is going to tell them, knock it off. Skip to chapter 10 and verse 19. I'm going to explain how, how he gets there in a minute, but just skip ahead. This is the punchline. This is the very end. Should you go into a temple and eat food that is offered to idols? If food is neutral, and if idols are meaningless emptiness, then why not just walk? Aren't you free? Why not just walk right into a temple in the middle of a worship service and eat food offered to idols? Look at verse 19 of chapter 10. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. He's about to talk about communion in the next chapter. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall you provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So this is where Paul is going. He's going to eventually tell them that this practice of actually going into a temple and eating food that is sacrificed to idols, which was happening in Corinth, he's going to tell them, knock it off. But he wants to get at the deeper issue. It's not just about the fact that they're disobeying Acts chapter 15 and, and Revelation chapter 2. It's that they're failing in loving their fellow brothers and sisters. So let me show you how Paul's argument kind of flows. This is kind of, this is the map of where we're headed, Lord willing, for the next three or four weeks as we venture into this topic. In chapter 8, verses 1 to 13, that's where we are today. He's going to be talking about idols and food and knowledge and love and conscience. He doesn't jump down to the application. That doesn't come till chapter 10. He's laying the groundwork, and he wants to start with, make sure you're loving your neighbor and you're being sensitive to your neighbor's conscience. That's where he starts. Then he's going to use two illustrations, one from chapter 9. He's going to say, let me give you an illustration of my own life. And then Paul gives a bunch of examples about how even though he has a certain right, he doesn't act on that right for the benefit of others. To teach the Corinthians that even though you feel like you have a right to eat anything you want and anywhere you want, lay that right aside for the benefit of others. He uses a positive example, and then in chapter 10, verses 1 to 3, he uses a negative example. He says, idolatry is not something to be trifled with. Food offered to idols is not neutral. And so he, he gives this lengthy description of Old Testament Israel and how they repeatedly fell into idolatry. It's not something that you can just welcome into your life without consequence. Then comes the application, which I, I already read that verse to you in, in, in chapter 10, verse 19 to 22. Are you eating in the temple? Are you eating food that has been offered? Knock it off. It's straight. He says that's participating with demons. That is, a Christian should not participate in that. Then, in chapter 10, verse 14 to 22, that's where things begin to look a little bit more like Romans 14. 
where Paul is saying, but if you're at the market, and if you're at your friend's house, it kind of depends on the situation. You see, here's the thing. Everything in life in the Greco-Roman world was tied to religion. Like, this afternoon... You, you might have a family get-together, a birthday party or something like that, and then maybe afterwards you're going to catch the Super Bowl, right? There's, there's nothing inherently religious about either of those things. You go to a retirement party or a birthday party. There's nothing religious about that. You, go to, you watch a sporting event. There's nothing, there's nothing religious about either of those things. But in Corinth, if you were to go to a family party or a religious party or a birthday party, there's for sure going to be a religious component. All of the sporting events in Corinth, they had their own Olympics. There, there would have been prayers, there would have been offerings, it all would have been in the context of worship. Religion and the worship of idols was inescapable in the Roman world. We live in a secular world. We have no real concept of what that means. If you grew up in North America, you have no idea what it was like. Others of us who grew up in other parts of the world, you know exactly what's that, what that's like, where religion is inescapable. And so here's the thing, in the temple, meat would be offered as a sacrifice. Some of it would just be burned up, that belonged to the God. Some of it was given to the priest or the priestess who was making the offering. Some of it was enjoyed by the person who made the offering, and then the leftovers, it went to Loblaws. And there were some Christians who came out of an idle background that didn't want to buy meat from Loblaws just in case that meat came from a temple was associated with idols. Some Christians didn't even want to go to Loblaws because Loblaws itself sold meat. They didn't want to participate or give, give money to a business that participated in the whole process. And so you have some Christians who don't even want to go to a market or don't even want to buy meat from a market because of hypersensitivity to meat sacrificed idols, even though that's inescapable. If you're going to eat meat at all, chances are it had something to do with a sacrifice. So you had one group of people that wouldn't even go to the market. And then you got another group of people, they're walking right into the idol temple and eating the, the meat sacrificed idols. So that's the context, that's the background. And Paul is trying to tell the people who are going into the temple, slow down. He's going to tell them in two chapters, knock it off, you're participating with demons. But before he gets there, he wants them to understand the consequences of their actions and how that's affecting the brother or sister in Christ who is anxious even to go to the marketplace and it all comes down to a proper understanding of knowledge. This, th this theme of knowledge keeps coming up in 1 Corinthians. Remember in chapter 1 and chapter 2, all the stuff about wisdom and, and, and knowledge and, and thinking that because they had tongues in their services and prophecy in services and because they were so wise and so eloquent that they could kind of make up their own rules, that they knew everything. But Paul here is going to really get at this issue of knowledge. The word knowledge or know or knowing appears 10 times in these 13 verses. And he wants to know here, first off, what do we know about humility and love? You think you guys know everything? You think you know everything about idols? You think you know everything about God? Let's talk about what your knowledge is actually producing. Is it puffing you up? 
or is it making you more humble and are you building up your brothers and sisters in Christ? Verse eight, he says, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. This knowledge puffs up. Knowledge, true knowledge, should produce humility and love. But instead, it was producing arrogance and selfishness. It should produce humility and love, but it was producing arrogance and selfishness. It was puffing them up. And then he uses in contrast, he says, but love, rather than focusing on how much you know, focus on how you need to love God and love your neighbor because love is what builds up. This building metaphor keeps coming up in the book of 1 Corinthians laying a foundation in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and spiritual leaders are building upon it. When he's talking about spiritual gifts, he says, use your spiritual gift to build up the church. Love is what is to build us up. Love is to what is to flow through the church. And, and the result of a loving church is a church that is built up. You see, knowledge in the case of Corinth was all about asserting personal rights. That's what knowledge does. Love, on the other hand, assumes personal responsibility for the group. If you focus on just what you know, then you're just going to know what rights you have and that you're entitled to them and you're going to flaunt them. But if you're going to love, sure, you know your rights, but you also know you have a responsibility to how someone is going to respond to how you are behaving so love is contrasted with knowledge. Just like he's going to say later in chapter, let's go jump ahead to chapter 13, verses 2 and 4. Paul says, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I'm nothing. Sure, Corinth, you can brag all you want about knowledge, but just understand that knowledge means nothing if you don't have the love that is committed to building up other brothers and sisters in Christ. Then he says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. There's that word again. That's the same word for puffed up. Love is not puffed up. Knowledge, if it's void of love, puffs up. But love builds up. Look at verse two. He says, if anyone imagines that he knows something, I love that phrase, they don't actually know something. They just imagine that they think they know something. Everyone knows the know-it-all, right? No one likes the know-it-all. Well, let me just explain that to you. Or, or good point, but let me just correct you uh, over. I overheard you saying that, and I just need to correct you. No one likes a know-it-all. The church at Corinth was full of them. Paul says, if anyone imagines that they know something, look at what he says. He does not yet know as he ought to know. Why doesn't he, why doesn't he know as he ought to know? Because we only know incompletely. First Corinthians, again. For we know in part. We prophesy in part. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Our knowledge right now is incomplete. We, we don't fully know. And look back at verse two. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he 
ought to know. There's a way that we are supposed to have knowledge. And that knowledge, if we, if we have all, knowledge in the right way, the way we ought to have it, that knowledge should produce love in us. Not only love, also humility. Look at verse three. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. It's not how much we know about God so that we can impress other people. But are we personally impressed by the fact that God knows us? This is, this is language of choosing, that God chose us. And he chose us as an omniscient God. He knows all about us, our past, our present, and our future. He knows every time that we've sinned. He knows every careless word we've spoken. He knows every evil and sinful thought we've ever thought. He, don't boast that you know something. Just marvel at the fact that God knows you. He knows, he knows everything about you. The good, the bad, and the ugly, and yet he still chose you. Loved ones, that must humble us. Not thinking that we somehow know everything about God. I love the way New Testament scholar, uh, Dr. Tom Schreiner, uh, sums this up. He says, true knowledge is adorned with humility and accompanied by love. And if these qualities are lacking, one's knowledge has not been applied correctly. If your knowledge doesn't involve humility and love, then you really don't know. Stop saying that you do know because unless your knowledge is producing humility and love, unless you are building up your brothers and sisters in Christ rather than trying to impress them with your intellect, you don't know. So then, next, Paul's gonna, he's gonna play their game for a little while. He's gonna ask them the second question. He's gonna ask them, what do you know about idols and about the Lord? What do you know about idols and the Lord? Now remember, he's got this trump card that he's gonna play in chapter 10. By the way, idol worship is demonic. He's gonna play that later. He's gonna play their game a little bit. So what, what are the things that you know? What do you know about idols? What do you know about God? Verse four, therefore, as to eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. Zeus isn't real. Poseidon isn't real. Aphrodite isn't real. I mean, we know that now. Sorry, Percy Jackson, but they're not real. But to, to make those kind of statements in Corinth at the time, I mean, that was how everyone was brought up. That was the air in which everyone breathed. Of course these gods were real. But the Corinthians, they knew. They knew these idols have no real existence, as it says in Psalm 135, 15 to 18. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Idols are powerless. Those who make powerless idols become powerless idols. They become powerless. Because they're standing before a statue, a block of wood, or a piece of, uh, uh, a piece of marble. Isaiah almost mockingly describes the whole process of constructing an idol. And one piece of wood is made into an idol, another piece of wood is thrown into the fire. And God even says in Isaiah, Isaiah uh, quotes the Lord where he says, I am the Lord, there is no other besides me, there is no God. Isaiah 44, 6, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. This is good theology. The Corinthians had good theology. 
but it was not producing the fruit of love in their life. Verse 5, for although there are many so-called gods in heaven and on earth, and indeed as there are many gods and many lords, although we live in this polytheistic world where there's all of these different gods, Paul says, yet for us, verse 6, there is one God, the Father from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things and through, sorry, and through whom we, sorry, and through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. You know what, I'm, I'm kind of glad that Corinth had all of these problems, although I, I would have been difficult to live with. And I've experienced this in my own life, that there's nothing like a crisis, there's nothing like a problem that helps us really understand theology. Haven't we over the last couple of, couple of years in this miniature crisis we're going through right now? Haven't we really had to think, think deeply, theologically, about what it means to be the church? What it means to worship? What it means to, like these, these are, we, we wouldn't have had these conversations. We wouldn't have had that kind of clarity if it weren't for the crisis. And so Paul here, in dealing with these people who thought they knew about God and thought they knew about idols, lays out here one of the most beautiful Christological statements one of the most clear testaments that Jesus Christ is, in fact, God. Paul uses the very language of the Shema. A Shema is the word hear, Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel. This is what the people of Israel would repeat day after day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Lord there should be all capitals. It's Yahweh. And Paul here is using the wording of the Shema, the teaching that God is one, to teach that although God is one, he exists in three persons. And focusing in especially on the two persons, the, 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 the Father and the Son. 1 Corinthians 8, 8, 6, for there is one God, the Father, from whom all things exist and for whom we exist. And then he used the word Lord. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. You see how it's parallel? He's saying the same thing about the Son as he was saying about the Father. Now, the Father is the one from whom are all things, but it's the Son through whom are all things. The Father, all things exist for him, and the Son, all things exist through him. Everything that exists, exists through Jesus. This, this is such a clear teaching about who Jesus is. Jesus was not created. The Father was always a Father. There wasn't a time where the Father was not a Father. There wasn't a time where the Son was not a Son. He's eternally begotten. He's always been a Son. The Father's always been a Father. The Son was not created. And the, because the Son, as it says he, right here in our, in our Bibles in verse 6... Everything exists through him. Everything was created through him. Which reminds us of verses like this. John chapter 3, sorry, John chapter 1 verse 3. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made. Colossians 1, 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Hebrews 1, 2. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. The Father and the Son, together with the Spirit, participated 
together in the creation of the world. The fathers did not create the Son or create the Spirit. They are eternally pre-existent. And Paul beautifully encapsulates that. And then he says in verse 7, However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Now, when it says not all possess this knowledge, it's not saying that you can be a Christian and not believe that Jesus is God, or that you can be a Christian and believe that idols are real. What Paul is describing here is that there are some people in the church who haven't fully grasped the implications of what this means. What does it actually mean for an idol to be nothing? What does it actually mean for God to be the only true God? And again, we have to step into the shoes of a Christian living in Corinth who's been converted out of a world of pagan idolatry. Their whole social network surrounded idol worship. So you have this social pressure, and then you also have this superstitious pressure. So you have a, a Christian in Corinth who's trying to live out, they believe that God is one. They believe that idols aren't real most of the time. But they feel this pressure to go to that family event or, or to, to keep those social, and they feel like the only way for them to keep those social connections going is to keep participating somehow in idol worship. And they feel really guilty about it. And then they also feel this superstitious thing. I'm going on this business trip and it's a long journey right across the Mediterranean and I know God will protect me, but, you know, at, at the shipyard there, there's a little shrine to Poseidon and he's the water God, like it's kind of his thing. And I know he's, the, but just to kind of hedge my bets, just, to, just as a bit of a theological backup plan, I, I, I'm just gonna, I, I just feel like I need to do it and they feel really guilty about it. This is, these are some of the Christians living in Corinth. This is what they were experiencing. There were some who didn't fully grasp the implications of what it means for there to be only one God. And because they had grown up all of their life with the practice of idolatry, they had a real difficult time separating what is just culture and everyday life? What is kind of inescapable just because it's a world filled with idols? And what is actually sinful and what is actual idol worship? They, they had a hard time separating those things. Paul reminds them in verse 8, Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. Food is neutral. It doesn't matter whether you eat or whether you don't eat. So the, the person who's anxious and not willing to go to the market, they need to grow out of that. They, they need to learn that it's not inherently sinful to buy meat, even if maybe it's somewhere along the line someone offered it as a sack. All food does not commend us to God. You're no better off if you eat. You're no, better off, no worse off if you don't eat. But look what he says in verse 9. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And then he says in verse 10, for if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? 
Underline that word encouraged. Encouraged if his, conference, if his conscience is weak. That word encouraged is the same word in verse one for building up. You can build up in a good way that's rooted in love that will help people follow Jesus or you can build people up in a bad way and, and make them feel more guilty or even lead them into what is sin. So Paul wants to know, he's like, let's talk about what you know. Do you know about humility and love? Not very much. Do you know about idols in the Lord? You think you do, but remember, I've got this demon trump card I'm going to lay on you in a couple of chapters. So I'm just going to play your game for now. And then the third question is this, what do you know about sensitivity and sacrifice? What do you know about sensitivity and sacrifice? It says that these people had a weak conscience. Their conscience is weak. It's mentioned in verse 7. It's mentioned again in verse 9. What does it mean to have a weak conscience? When we think about conscience, we often think about, you know, the, the angel on this shoulder and the little devil on this soldier, right? And we would normally think that a, a weak conscience is that the angel is too quiet. And, and our conscience is weak, which means that we just do bad things and we don't care about it. That's, that's not what a, what a weak conscience actually is. Let's just first define what a conscience is. A conscience is us somewhat subjectively evaluating our behavior based on our own standards. It's the pleasure we feel or the pain we feel when we either follow what we think is right or fail in what we think is right. It's, it's our ability to discern and determine what makes things right and what makes things wrong and how we feel about it. Paul says that this group of people who were so entrenched, he says because of a former association with idols, their conscience is weak. They were feeling guilty about things they shouldn't feel guilty about. They should feel free to go to Loblaws. They should feel free to, to buy whatever meat happens to be offered there, but they feel guilty about it. They have a weak conscience. Now this other group, now they're not called strong. They're called the knowers, the people who know things. They know about God, they know about idols. These people were on the, other, on the other side. They didn't have a weak conscience. They didn't feel guilty. They should have felt guilty, but they didn't. They were so filled with knowledge. They thought, I know that God's the only true God. I know that food is neutral. Jesus declared all food clean. I know that I'm no better off if I eat or if I don't eat. And I know that idols are nothing. So I know I can walk right into an idol's temple and say none of this is true and I'm just gonna eat whatever I wanna eat thinking that they know so much, forgetting that they're breaking Acts chapter 15 and Revelation chapter 2. That's the danger. The weak conscience person, their danger is that they can feel guilty about something that's neutral. The person with the super strong conscience, if, they if they're so focused on knowledge, that person can feel not guilty when they actually do sin. I mean, they are sinning. Keep reading. Verse, verse 11 and so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed and the brother, for whom, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. The people with the quote-unquote strong conscience with all the knowledge, they should feel guilty, but they don't. And Paul's really gonna hit them in chapter 10 with the demon thing. But for now, he's saying, you're sinning against your brother and sister. 
Because they're trying to make sense of what is going on. How can a Christian be doing that? Why is he going to that place and eating that? You see, loved ones, here's the thing. True knowledge is not just knowing the difference between a truth and a lie. True knowledge is when you understand the truth, having the sensitivity to understand that certain lies have taken particular root in certain people. Some of us grew up in churches with false teaching, and then all of a sudden we started reading the Bible and our own, our own thing, and then we started started sharing it with people, and they weren't listening, so we started yelling at people, and then we started doing flagrant things to upset people, and how did that work? Because although there were lies, some of those lies went really deep, and people were not as quick. Remember, you believed them at one point, too. Others of us, listen, guys, we're all being lied to. I mean, if you grew up going to public school or went to, like, a college or a university, we were just... Next lecture, more lies. Next, we're all, we've all been lied to. We've all been lied to. And some of us as Christians, we've had our eyes open to certain things that are happening in our culture or happening in the government or happening in media or happening in education. And we've had our eyes open and we see the truth. But just because you know the truth, that's not it. Do you understand with sensitivity that not everyone knows it yet? And some of those lies are just part of everyday life and the air that we breathe. And maybe you should stop shouting. You might think, it's so clear, it's so true. I can summarize it in 140 characters. Look, it's right there. Hit send. And then you're perplexed about why someone doesn't get it. They don't get it because for some people, lies go deeper. And we got to stop shouting at one another. And we got to stop talking over one another. And we got to start showing some sensitivity. The church at Corinth, not only were they breaking an explicit command from Acts chapter 15 and Revelation 2, going into an idol temple and eating food, food sacrificed to idols, which they were supposed to abstain from, they were also being completely insensitive to their brothers and sisters in Christ. Not just at the temple, but in the marketplace and at the, around the table and so on and so on. So true knowledge is not just knowing the difference between a truth and a lie, but understanding that for some people, some lies go deep. And it's gonna take a lot of conversations and a lot of patience and a lot of love. And are you puffed up about what you know? Or are you committed to lovingly and patiently build up a brother and sister in Christ who may not see things the way that you see things? That's what he's getting at. Look at the, look at the consequences. Look at what, oh, sorry. Uh, one note about a, a weak conscience, a really helpful quotation from uh, Pastor John MacArthur. He says, ironically, a weak conscience is more likely to accuse than a strong conscience. Scripture calls this a weak conscience because it is too easily wounded. You feel guilty about something you shouldn't feel guilty about. People with weak consciences tend to fret about things that should provoke no guilt in a mature, in a mature Christian who knows God's truth. The telltale sign of a weak conscience is to take something that's neutral, it's not good or bad, and to either say, if you do that, 
you're sinning. Or if you don't do that, you're sinning. That's the telltale sign. If you take something neutral and make it about sin and holiness, that's where, that, that, that's how you know that you have a weak conscience. And it gets really dangerous when you don't just apply it to yourself, when you start applying it to other people. Oh, a Christian would never do this or never do that, even though it's a neutral thing. That's what a weak conscience does. Look at, look at what ends up happening to this poor, weaker brother. Look at the description here. It says, his conscience is defiled. He's all confused. It's all dirty. It's all muddy. It's unclear. He, he, he can't make sense of, of why does he feel bad. And now, now he's, he can't even believe that this other Christian is, he's so confused. He stumbles. He falls into sin himself. He's destroyed. And his conscience is wounded. Now look at verse 11. What level of destruction? What is the extent of stumbling? These are words that are normally used in the New Testament uh, to describe someone uh, being, being eternally separated from God. A stumbling block, a stumbling stone. People who are ultimately destroyed. But look at the context. Look at verse 11. And by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. Notice how they're described the brother for whom Christ died. If Christ died for someone, they're going to heaven. Their sins have been forgiven. They've been covered in Christ's blood. And notice, they're described as a brother, a brother for whom Christ died. So this is not, this, you're not making people lose their salvation in, in these bad choices that the church at Corinth has been making. But it is serious nonetheless. These are, this is the most serious kind of language that we can use, the kind of harm that is being done to the brother or sister with the weaker conscience. So we've got to have sensitivity, and then also we've got to have, we've got to have sacrifice. Look what he says in verse 13. Therefore, if, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Paul's like, <laughs> if me eating meat is going to destroy another brother and sister in Christ or defile his conscience or make him sin, then it, if eating meat is going to do that, pass the broccoli. Like, this should not be a hard choice. And, and of course, I'm not going to do anything that will flagrantly fly in the face of this person and their conscience and their level of sensitivity, even though I happen to be right. But in Corinth's case, they were so right, they ended up being wrong. So loved ones, we, we, we need to be prepared to sacrifice for one another. And that's what's coming later in chapter, uh, in chapter 10. About what do, we, what do we do in the marketplace when we're buying food? What do we do when we're invited over to someone's house and someone mentions food? How do we handle those unique situations? Those are all situational. But what Paul is dealing with here is just flat out, do not associate with the worship of false gods. That's demonic. And not only is that demonic, but it's, it's harming your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's rooted in arrogance. It's not rooted in love. And we follow a Savior who loved us and who sacrificed for us 
So how much more then will we love those for whom he died and be willing to sacrifice for them as well? Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, the one who knew us and yet died to save us, the one who loved us and therefore sacrificed for us. And Heavenly Father, I pray for those, Lord, who are here and they have a weak conscience. And there are certain things, maybe it's certain addictions in their past or it's, it's a, a certain part of their upbringing. Lord, I, I pray that when they feel accused about things that are neutral and if they still continue out of wisdom to avoid us certain things, Lord, I pray that you would give them the strength by the Holy Spirit to do those things. But God, I pray that they would not have their conscience accuse them, but that they would uh, develop an understanding of who they are in Christ and what you have accomplished and what it means to follow you. And Father, for those of us who feel like we've been awakened to understand a certain theological or philosophical truth and are frustrated with other people who don't quite understand it, Lord, I, I pray that there would be a sensitivity, I pray that there would be a humility, and I pray that there would be a love, that we would build one another in love. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do a good work in us, that we would serve and sacrifice for one another because you served and sacrificed for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.